Hello everyone and welcome to the Lisa Burke Show. Amazing to think that we're already into our fourth radio week. Somehow it feels much longer. And I want to thank all of our listeners, kind messages that have come our way. Thank you Aoife in Galway, Ireland. Thank you Rod in New York. Great to know that we live in an age where our words really can carry around the world. And of course, hello to all of you here in Luxembourg. Now, I know that many of you were touched by the poignancy of Jackie Spence's words last week describing her young childhood years in London during World War II, which echo the scenes that we see today and every day for the last month from Ukraine. This week, as always, I'm delighted to welcome wonderful people who live in Luxembourg doing such a range of great work. And later on my show, we're going to have Dr. Hilda Hardeman, Director General of the Publications Office of the EU, and Claudia Gavel, who is the organiser for Relais pour la Vie, happening this weekend. But first, I'm delighted to welcome back Sasha Kehoe, our newsreader from The Sam Steen Show, to give us a roundup of the week's news. Sasha, lovely to have you with us again. Oh, hi, Lisa, it's nice to be back after a little break. <laughs> a, little, a little sort of break where your daughter was uh, sitting at home with COVID. Yeah, I'm afraid so. But we were very l- lucky because none of us got it and it wasn't bad. So, uh, yeah, I just couldn't come into this tiny studio. I would think I was worried about. Yeah, well, there, it's definitely, I mean, it's one of the points. COVID is sort of on the increase. <laughs> COVID is on the increase. And it's not really a surprise, I suppose. But thankfully, from what we're seeing, most of the cases are of the milder sort. Seems to be, doesn't it? I mean, I watching my daughter, it was a completely different thing to when my son got it a year ago, where he, he was bedridden and really felt poorly. And for her, it was like a sort of a bad cold. But I mean, they're young, um, but it seems to be affecting young people. So although the numbers are, I mean, 30% up last week um, from before, it it doesn't seem as serious. Yeah. And I heard there was a European school party at Atelier, Don Atelier. I think that might have been where my daughter got it. I think there were quite a few cases that emanated from that, the, the close proximity of about 1,700, um, 16 to 18 year olds. Well, well spotted. That's exactly. Yeah. No masks. Everyone's partying again. It's, it's bound to happen, isn't it? It is. And I think a lot of us, uh, the way of other diseases, communicable diseases recently, because we've been all keeping our distance and masked up. So it's likely that we're going to get one or two things as we move (laughs) forward in time. So let's talk about Ukraine, but but from a different angle. I know, obviously, everything that's going on, it's really awful. And we know that we have refugees coming here and great things actually are being done in Luxembourg. But I wanted to pick on one of the articles that you saw during the week, which is I have a crush on Zelensky. So (laughs) tell us about this wonderful article. Well, it has been really criticised for, there's a kind of uh, hashtag, I have a crush on Zelensky. And it's been criticised for trivialising the war. But, you know, we're all unbelievably impressed, aren't we, by President Zelensky. I mean, his impassioned pleas to European, the European Parliament, I mean, to all parliaments, to, to the US Congress, to demonstrations, they're extraordinary. And I think the fact that he is a trained actor may help because he's got such a fantastic handle on the media. So I think he's he's managing to keep um, the Ukraine war alive, you know, in, in Europe, it would be alive anyway, but he's such an inspiration to, I think, Western leaders because of his uh, bravery um, in sticking out in, in Kiev, where a lot of people, I think, would have run away. A lot of leaders would have run away. And, uh, you know, he's shown real leadership. But, of course, his history is fascinating because he's not a professional politician. Um, he was an actor um, and, a, and a comic actor. 
And so I read this article, I, I have a crush on um, Zelensky, written by Caitlin Moran, who's quite a funny columnist. She is hilarious. She's written quite a few books on all sorts of things to do with women and motherhood. And yeah, very funny writer. And it just made me laugh out loud because... Of course, I, what I hadn't appreciated was that um, Zelensky had been this comedian and he has done hilarious videos where he's literally in PVC hot pants um, uh, pretending to be Beyonce uh, in the single ladies um, video. Uh, Servant of the People. I watched a couple of episodes now as well. It's very funny as as this teacher who becomes the president. It's now available again on Netflix, on Netflix yeah because of everything I mean it's extraordinary the the flip side of a, an awfully tragic situation yeah. and it, of course it's not funny we're just smiling at this story and the the actual situation of course is not funny but it's not the first time an actor has become president yes but maybe um you know when you think of sort of people like Ronald Reagan uh you know I, it seems so old-fashioned, doesn't it, that he was in Westerns and even that Nancy Reagan was an actress. The idea that you have this, really what seems to be like a war hero. Um, also, you can watch clips on him on the Ukrainian uh, Strictly Come Dancing show. And, you know, he's... So it's it's a very interesting mix. And, of course, uh, it's 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 a bit edgy to sort of say uh, yeah. you've got a crush on him. But I think we're we're all kind of rather overwhelmed and impressed. An easy impressed crush would be have. another way to put it. Yeah. And uh, it, it sort of reminds me in some ways, um, definitely not a parallel or um, certainly not equating them in any way, but Trump used the media to his advantage as well to become a very popular figurehead. Uh, he divi- divided it greatly, but it was certainly um, a tool in his uh, artillery (laughs) when he was uh, pushing for the four. But just uh, moving on to other stories, we have also, as an outcome of this Ukrainian crisis, a different emphasis, an accelerating emphasis on the climate crisis, for example. It's interesting, isn't it? Obviously, because we are so dependent um, in Europe on, on Russian gas and oil, People are looking back into renewables. Uh, I mean, not that we stopped, but it didn't feel such a priority. And I think there's a renewed energy um, in trying to find more green energy and be less reliant on fossil fuels. Yeah, and we're seeing it in our bills. I mean, literally just yesterday, I was having conversations with people trying to figure out what is the best sort of fuel choice for a house, for instance. And that depends on the age of the house and all sorts of different things. And there's a great worry that well, again, I hear a lot in the, the British press, for example, people cannot afford their bills. Yeah, it's going to be a massive thing, isn't it? Yeah. And then I thought what was also very interesting is that, of course, um, so for example, this week, Belgium decided not to close down all their nuclear power stations, which they had planned to do. So they're going to keep two open because they don't they, they feel that they still need the nuclear power. Yeah, yeah. Um, which, of course, the, the environmental lobby is totally against. And in fact, they were much criticised by the Envir- Minister of Environment um, in Luxembourg. But to me, that seems quite a sensible option. Because when too. you look at Germany, yeah. um, you know, they they have no alternative now because yeah. they, they are so reliant on, on Russian um, fossil fuels and they have no nuclear energy and not enough renewables. Yeah, nuclear energy is one of those tricky ones really but when you understand it it's actually incredibly clean energy unless something goes wrong (laughs) and um, that's why I always wondered why did Japan build a nuclear power station 
in what is actually zone. an earthquake zone, you know, that that's what I would consider not entirely sensible. But anyway, we won't bore our way through nuclear energy. But it's Let- interesting this afternoon. I uh, will be really interested to see how many people take part in uh, Fridays for Future have started again. So there's a, a Youth for Climate uh, demo in, in town. And just to say we're recording this on Friday morning. Oh, sorry. Yes, yes. of course. And um, it'll be interesting to see how many people go, whether this is something that young people still feel impassioned about. They have tied it to also a demonstration against the war. Yeah. Um, Well, they are linked in certain ways. So it will be interesting to see how many people take part. I think people are realising how globalisation is affecting so much of our lives. A lot of people, us, um, just wander through life not quite knowing the connections of where various parts of our cars come from or where the grain that makes our bread comes from or literally the oil in our tanks comes from and certainly people are being hit. Anybody who has a car is seeing the the doubling of fuel prices. So there's huge links now and I think people are becoming more aware of all sorts of things that perhaps we took for granted before. Yeah, you're right. I mean, uh, another story that really struck me was that um, Egypt is in huge crisis because they are so reliant on grain from Ukraine. So wow. apparently bread is 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 very, very important to the Egyptian diet. And 60% of... Every diet, I would diet. say. <laughs> <laughs> One of my favourite things. Yes, I, I, I agree. And... Um, they, uh, b- because they're not, the, the prices have gone up so much for, for grain. Egypt, um, the whole economy is in crisis, b- specifically because they can't get hold of Ukrainian grain. Well, that's absolutely fascinating. Mm. Yeah, I remember Georgia being called the yeah. breadbasket of Europe. Um, but now I think Ukraine is also the breadbasket of Europe. So that region obviously has, well, I mean, it's huge for starters and it's got uh, great uh, agricultural capacities. Now, in our final few minutes, let's talk yes. about uh, the Oscars. We've oh, got good. them coming up this weekend. A little bit of lightness for once. Uh, they're back. They're in real life. I've watched a couple of the films. I, yeah, not all of them, but I think you watch more than I have. So I watched uh, The Power of the Dog. Yeah, because, me of course, too. That was easy yeah. to watch because it was, uh, you could watch it at home on your <laughs> TV screens. Yeah. Um, but I really felt that. Um, Actually, I should have gone to the cinema to see it. Yeah. It wasn't a film on the small screen, was it? It was a slow-moving film that perhaps would have been digested differently. What did you think of it? Well, I got bored, I'm afraid. Yeah, I don't think you were the only one. Um, <laughs> I didn't know that Kirsten Dunst and uh, Jesse Plemons are married. So, uh, oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, either, no. so all this like little trivia I found out afterwards. But... <laughs> Um, it is a hot favourite to win Best Picture. Yeah, which made me think, I mean, no disrespect to the director or the film itself, but it made me feel like uh, there weren't a huge number of films to choose from in this case. But maybe that's a yeah, bit mean of me. No, I, I wasn't so keen on it. But then I did wonder, because the films I preferred were films I'd seen at the cinema. So, for example, I went to see Belfast, which I thought was wonderful, uh, which is the uh, film um, about Kenneth Branagh's childhood uh, growing up in Belfast in in the 70s. And, um, and the other film that I adored, the Steven Spielberg uh, remake of West Side Story. Which I'd love to see. I mean, I'd like to see both of those and I haven't, but I'm a huge, a huge fan of that music. So uh, it's beautiful music. Yeah.
Yeah, exactly. So I wonder whether that doesn't influence you. But another hot favourite for Best Picture, which I haven't seen, is a film called Dune. Yeah, I didn't watch it either because it's sort of in that sci-fi realm and it's based on a lot of books I didn't read. And um, (laughs) I thought, but maybe I should go and see it. it. It's not quite my world. Yes. But the one that might be more, Lisa, up your street is something called Coda, which is a film about a deaf fam- an eccentric deaf family. Um, and apparently it's a very feel good film that uh, is, I think, a late runner up to be. Oh, ah, yeah. Anything. Yeah. Feel good is always good when you've got teenage children, I think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we need all the help we can get. Alongside that, I know there's been a few more promo videos based back here in Luxembourg. And And it's a little bit about the tram extension, which may not sound exciting, but it's going to go to the airport. And I'm sure that'll have um, an effect on the house prices in the region as well. And we've also got this new residential project in this area here of Kirchberg. So what's uh, going to happen in the next few years? It's going to be, I don't know when, actually, I don't even know when it's going to be built by. Um, I I think the tram extension is going to be built by 2023 to the airport. And um, this residential quarter, I'm not quite sure, they're starting building soon. Um, It's interesting because it's uh, a new concept for Kirchberg. So it's supposed to be part city, part forest. Um, You know, they're they're building more infrastructure like schools and shops and a swimming pool. And um, a natural swimming pool. Natural swimming pool, exactly. And it's supposed to be a bit more... Um, yes. Green. Green yeah. and there's the, the, no car parking spaces. Yeah, I heard there were talks with an architect from, I, I don't know, I might be wrong, but a Danish architect or something. And the idea was to make it a really pedestrianised zone yeah. and a place where a community is really formed. I mean, it's a wonderful idea, but we have the eternal issue that house prices are... Horrific. Uh, who's going to afford to live there? That is, I mean, they're supposed to be, um, the majority are supposed to be affordable housing. And the reason being is because Kirchberg is one of the few areas that is owned by the state. Yeah. 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 So maybe there, there, there will be more possibility for people to live here. But I, I just had, I watched these very slick promo videos and I had this sort of overwhelming feeling that, yes, but will young Luxembourgers be able to buy these flats or rent these flats um, you know who is it going to be that lives there is it just going to be people who work in Kirchberg at the institutions or the banks um, that will somehow snap them up um, and I, I kind of uh, yes I always have this feeling when I see amazing projects in Luxembourg uh, which are exciting um, what about the the people that really live here who are trying to sort of live in normal jobs it's out of their reach, isn't it? And yeah. The, the housing market is one of those eternal issues <laughs> that mm. cause a lot of pain to people, both Luxembourgish people who grow up here and don't have the the farms that some people have. And, and also, of course, expats um, like ourselves who come here and uh, don't hit the market at the right time, in my case. <laughs> and I'm certainly not alone. Sasha, thank you so much for your time as always. It's lovely to see you here. Oh, it's great to be back. And uh, thanks a lot, Lisa. Thank you. RTL Original Podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Lisa Burke Show. Now joining me, I'm delighted to welcome Dr. Hilda Hardeman, Director General of the Publications Office of the EU, and Claudia Gable, who is the organizer for Rile pour la Vie, happening this weekend. A little introduction, first of all, to my guests. Dr. Hilda Hardeman, Director General of the Publications Office of the EU, 
It's a post she took up quite recently in December 2021. Prior to that, she served as head of the European Commission's Service for Foreign Policy Instruments. She joined the Commission in 1994 and since then has held the position of Deputy Head of Cabinet to the Commission's Vice President for Jobs, Growth, Investment and Competitiveness, headed the Commission President's briefing team and was in charge of the units for relations with Russia, Ukraine, Moldova and Belarus. Hilda Hardeman holds a PhD in Slavic philology and history from the University of Leuven, having studied at Leuven, Stanford University and the École des Hautes Études en Sciences Sociales in Paris. She was visiting professor also at the College of Europe. And a little bit about the Publications Office of the EU, if you haven't heard of it before. They handle an enormous amount of data and are the official provider of publishing and open data management services to all the EU institutions. The central point for the EU and case law, publications, open data, research results, procurement notices and other official information. And their mission is to make all of this information available to all EU policymakers, public administrations, citizens and and businesses, and they have to work really hard in figuring out how to disseminate this information, hold long-term data well, and flow with the digitalization of data. Dr. Hilda Hardeman, it's a pleasure to have you here. Hello, Lisa. Thank you so much for having me here today. Such an incredible past that you have. I want to dip in, first of all, to your knowledge of the situation right now. You have such an academic and working knowledge with Russia, Ukraine and that region. So I'll just give you an open question. What are your thoughts on this situation? It's heartbreaking. That's the first thing that I would say for many, many reasons. War is always bad. Uh, peace is the most important thing for a human being. I've been thinking about that lately, even more than I did before. So here we have a war uh, in the middle of the European continent um, and the war between, I would say, uh, two different ways of looking at the world, uh, two different societies, one system where, let's say, human lives are not so important, where the power of the state is very important, where there is also a concern for security that is, on the one hand, uh, centuries old, that is rooted in history, uh, but on the other hand, that I think has, uh, by developments over the past decades, from my perspective, lost its real relevance and then we have an other society a peaceful country well, let's let's name it that just like russia has been part of the soviet union that shares a common past um, but that has gone through uh, an enormous development over the past decades. Uh, I was actually working as desk officer for ukraine from 1998 uh, to 2000 I have been since then many, many times in the country. And of course, while Ukraine at that time was very much an ex-Soviet country with a world look that was still rather far away uh, from ours, I think the fact that we have seen real democracy in that country, um, real uh, freedom of speech has led to an enormous uh, development in the minds uh, and the hearts of the people. We can see that people 
want to live in the sort of free society uh, that we know uh, here, that they do not want to go back to the way of living and thinking of the past. Uh, and we also see that a country that had been quite divided between the east and the west uh, of the country, that the, the common threat that they are now facing has actually meant that all of a sudden everybody there feels Ukrainian. Um, so these are many thoughts. Indeed, this war has to stop, but I think that nobody knows really how. The international community has to give a clear signal that it is not acceptable to just like that enter a peaceful country and start killing its citizens, bombarding its cities uh, without any uh, difference between military uh, and civilians. Um, but how we will pass that signal uh, to the other side, it's really not easy uh, once again because the, the frames of reference are very different. I'm very proud as a European Union official and as a European citizen about the unity uh, that is being shown uh, at this moment in the European Union about the clear messages, about uh, the support that millions of people in the European Union are giving to the millions of refugees uh, that are coming from Ukraine, taking them up in their homes, uh, taking them in their schools, trying to help them uh, as best uh, as we possibly can. Uh, but of course, while this is extremely needed and extremely encouraging, it does not uh, address the root cause uh, mm -hmm. of the problem. Uh, and here, to be very honest with you, uh, I think it's extremely difficult to give any clear or definitive answer. Yeah, I mean, one of your specialisms in your academic research was the Russian Civil War and how brutal that was. And you speak about the different frames of reference. So in the political sphere, from the EU point of view, how can one even start a dialogue with somebody who is coming from a completely different frame of reference? Well, I have to say that we have had years of dialogue and very positive dialogue. I have been personally involved in that over many, many years. Uh, somehow, because of my background, my training, I ended up working a lot on Russia in the European Commission. Well, it's not a surprise. Um, You're an expert on that field. <laughs> but so uh, I think the whole period from... Yes, actually, from my entry uh, into the European Commission in 1994, I started in the in the Russia unit until I left that part of the house uh, in 2010. Uh, I have been working on, in one way or another, on relations with Russia. And how did they progress during that time? But I would say very positively, very, very positively. One can, of course, look in different ways at the situation. I think what was missing. I would be the first to say that. And I would also say that for me, with my background, it was something that I was very much conscious about. What was missing, I think, in the beginning uh, of uh, our relationship with Russia after the falling apart of the Soviet Union was, of course, a clear recognition that we have to do with a country, with a culture. For instance, an excellent, I have to say that, an excellent uh, public administration, extremely highly educated people, a country that has 
a lot to offer. And we were providing assistance uh, in their reforms, also assistance for many practical issues uh, they were struggling with. But um, I think that on occasion we approached Russia like a country with a completely different type of background and that is something that one can certainly question uh, when you deal with Russian people, with Russian officials, they expect respect. I think that any human being around the world should be given and shown respect. And I think that on the whole, in the very, very early days, there could have been more of that. Uh, but I would also say that very quickly we got into a relationship uh, trying to see where uh, is the win-win. Um, for the European Union, uh, the relationship with Russia is very special because we have a relationship with uh, a country that, in a way, is a player on the world uh, scene, a member of the Security Council. We also deal with a country that is our neighbour. When you deal with a neighbour, it's very different than when you deal with somebody far away. Uh, do they view us as a neighbour? They did view us at that time, certainly as a neighbour. Um, but I think that uh, we have seen... Uh, I, I made that point because it's very different as compared to the relationship with the United States. The United States is divided by a deep ocean. Uh, we have many practical uh, things, uh, like how do we deal with our common borders? Uh, how do we deal with movement of people? How do we deal with movement of goods? Uh, and many, many others, how do we deal with uh, our common waters, uh, the Baltic Sea? Uh, I could continue. Do they view us as neighbours? Well, uh, I can tell you that in the late 90s, when we had a visit of the entire Russian government, led at that time by Prime Minister Viktor Chernomyrdin, uh, I was present in that meeting. Uh, I even gave a little presentation to Mr. Chernomyrtin in Russian that they were speaking about one day wanting to join the European Union and that it was more the European Union side. That was a little bit uh, thinking, oh, my God, that's that's quite a big country to take in, you know, <laughs> um, but bigger than the EU, in fact. Yes. <laughs> Well, not in terms of citizens. We're only, only talking about 150 Geography. people. But geographically, yeah. of course, one-sixth of the landmass uh, is, is Russia. Uh, but I think that we have seen uh, a gradual uh, widening uh, of, of the cliff. And then, yeah, why, why do certain things happen? If I would be able to tell you exactly what it was and why it was and how it came about... Uh, uh, I think that would be answering the, the $1 billion question. Uh, we saw, for various reasons, uh, a gradual widening. And uh, as I have indicated, if we look again uh, at, at Ukraine, the fact uh, that you have seen democracy really take root there, with all the negative aspects that it may have. Uh, but when there are elections in Ukraine, you do not know who will win beforehand in Russia. I'm very sorry to say so for the past two decades or 15 years, we do know, um, that there is freedom of speech, that there is the possibility to travel. There is visa-free travel uh, with Ukraine. Uh, we can go there freely. They can come here freely. We have seen also between the countries of the former Soviet Union and uh, a widening in, in the worldview. Well, um, this reflects back into your family history as well, because 
you spent your childhood on a World War I front. And tell us how that influenced your family. I know your, your parents have actually produced an incredible book with the witness statements of people from the Great War. Tell us about your family's experiences, just reflecting back, you know, 100 years or so into what they went through. Well, uh, yes, I grew up in a region that, thank God, was not the front when I was growing up there, but had been the front in the First World War, the region around Ypres. Um, I'm born in 63, so uh, let's say I was a, a child uh, in the 60s and 70s. Um, in the region where I grew up, there is not a single house, but also not a single tree, except one tree in the entire region that predates uh, 2018. The tree is on the cover of the book. This tree was completely broken, but it shot up again. Uh, but there is nothing else that you will find there that predates uh, 2018. It doesn't exist. It was flattened, the whole region. The region is full of war graves everywhere where you can look. And especially for me as a child, uh, even though that was more than 50, it was 50 years after the end of the First World war the land was still full of bombs so uh, we knew and still is to this and day. still is today of course the belgian army is a world expert in demantling bombs demining because they have had to do this for the past century on the belgian territory um, but when i was a child uh, i grew up in a village uh, in a rural area the farmers would take the bombs they found would put them on the corner of the fields and the army would make their rounds uh, every day and every day and every day. And so accidents would happen. Uh, I remember very well in the class of my brother when we were very small, uh, two of boys of his class were playing and one lost an eye, one lost an arm before, because of, of a bomb from a war uh, more than, than 50 years ago. Also, my um, my uh, grandparents were small children when the war happened. So my grandfather left as the smallest of three little boys with his two brothers. They were in France. They didn't know where their parents were. I have a very beautiful picture from my grandfather as a really small kid with his, his older brother who was then only 13 and was alone with two, two other little boys. And uh, they were taken well, well care of by people in, in France, thank God, because if not, I wouldn't exist, you know, I would not be on this earth. But so everything that you can think about today, if you think about Ukraine today, uh, Syria, all the other war theatres that we know, unfortunately, the things, the experiences, the stories are exactly the same, except that there were no nuclear weapons then, but there were chemical weapons. They were used for the first time ever in Ypres, which is the place where I went to school. Uh, the gas was called Ypres uh, afterwards, uh, and the experience was terrifying and, and horrible. And I think like any war, a war brings the, the worst and the best out in people. People are uh, able to do heroic things to help each other. And so what my parents, but not only my parents, but um, also other people in the region did in the 60s, they went around with a tape recorder and they recorded the stories of the people who had lived 
that period. Some were children, some were very old people in the 60s and had been adults at the time of the war. And they collected all these human stories together in a book. And this book is available, unfortunately, not in English, but in French and in Dutch. There's many uh, of our it, listeners who speak both of those languages. And um I really can recommend it because it's all very, very short stories of a page, half a page. And these people simply tell what they have lived uh, in the war. And again, it's not different from what you hear from people coming from Ukraine uh, or from Syria. We're all refugees in one way or another. Exactly, Lisa. I think in Europe, if you dare to go back a few generations, because the history is, of course, much, much longer than only a hundred years ago, um, we're all refugees. We're all the children or grandchildren or great-grandchildren of refugees. And to put this also in evidence, and this was before the Ukraine war, a group of people have put in place, have equipped a garden where they show that from the the 15th, 16th century until today, in a way, people are refugees. The stories of the people that now are coming into our homes are not different from those of our grandparents and of the generations hundreds of years ago. It's the same. And the sad thing about this story is that for such amazing community and humanity that is shown from person to person, citizen to citizen, even if we don't speak the same language, at the same time we have other people killing one another. But with all of this history, do you feel it shaped you and now you are leading the publications office? Did it shape your life, living with this, where you're from? Oh yes, definitely. Um, I think if you come from from that region of the world, uh, and there are many other regions in Europe which have a similar story because, well, we have known many wars, thank God not our generation, and I do hope it stays like that. If you come from that region, you do not need to ask what do we have the European Union for, because we know, because in a remarkable, uh, I really, I, I have thought about this many, many times in my life, and I, I, I'm not saying I think about it every day, but I think about it very, very frequently. The fact that after the Second World War, very soon after the Second World War, there were people who had been fighting killing each other, were able to say, not now we need to take revenge, but now we need to stop this. This vicious circle has to be broken. This has to end. And we're able to sit together between people coming from, from warring parties. Just a few years later, you, you really have to try and think about that and work together to build something constructive, something positive that has given us um, peace, that has given us prosperity because everybody wants to come to the European Union, right? I have not seen big flux of refugees, I'm very sorry, who all absolutely want to go and settle in Moscow. I haven't seen that. I have seen big fluxes of refugees who all absolutely want to come to the European Union and live in peace and prosperity and in freedom and in democracy. So it has very much shaped my life. I have an incredible admiration for um, the, the generation that was able to do that. I'm very proud that I, I can contribute to this. Now, I also have to say that in times when we were when we did not have a war in Europe, because now it's, of course, 
more emotional even than it was before. But in, in previous jobs, when, when sometimes I would come out of the council building at eight o'clock in the evening, the council building in Brussels after endless discussions uh, in a council working group on a topic that you think. But that I would say to myself, well, at least we're not killing ourselves, uh, each other. No, we're, we're sitting down, we're having endless discussions. Citizens may say, oh, this is a waste of time, it's a waste of money, it's a waste of energy. And on that, I would say, no, it isn't. Because when we have differences, we sit down and we talk. And it may take forever, but in the end, we do find a solution. And the most important of all, we do not kill each other, we do not destroy each other's cities, but we sit down like civilized adults mm-hmm. and we find a solution. Yeah, not just killing people, as you rightly say, and that's such a powerful point. The fact that so long as people can continue to talk, however long it may take, we're not killing each other. And on the point of cities, it also breaks my heart to see hundreds of years of history being flattened in the space of days and weeks. Tell us now about your role at the Publications Office. Tell us a little bit more about the office and the work that you do, because it's so vast, it was impossible for me to condense it into a short paragraph. It's really vast, and I think many of our listeners may not even know what's out there for them as citizens to access. Yeah, thank you very much, uh, Lisa. Uh, The Publications Office is what I would call a bit a back office type of service. But as we all know, this type of service is is very badly needed. So the publication office uh, exists more than 50 years. It has always been based in Luxembourg. Initially, its role was first and foremost to publish the official journal of the European Union. Now, every country has an official journal because if you adopt a law, the citizens need to know what is the law because they cannot be asked to implement the law if they do not know it. So the European Union, like any country, it's not a country, but it has the power to adopt legislation, has a publications organ, the official journal. And um, the official journal has been uh, prepared and printed at the time in Luxembourg in the publications office that was and still is strategically located between the train station and the post office. Why? Because this official journal at the time before uh, the digital world was printed, then put on the train to go to all member states or put in the mail to go to everybody who needed to receive it. Ah, that is, I didn't know that. (laughs) But I hear you're moving buildings. Yes, but we will actually, we will now move to the building that is now the post office. Uh We are just moving 50 (laughs) 50 meters. (laughs) But so today we still publish the official journal and, and it's important to know that legislation of the European Union does not become a law, it is not in in force as long as it has not been published by us. So you are the final stamp. We are the final stamp, our team that authenticates, as we say, the texts that come from Brussels. To you are the royal seal. Voilà, it, it's sealed, that's how it's called. Oh. And then these are all electronic uh, mechanisms now. So it is authenticated and then it's published digitally. So it's the digital uh, publication that 
qui fait foi, as we say in French, which is legally binding. Um, and in how many languages? In all the languages of the European Union, which is 24, My 24 goodness. languages. But the translation is not for us. That is done by the, the service uh, of translation. Of course, we have the so-called lawyer linguists as well, who then have to verify that all is correct. But those are not located with us. We really do the authentication and then the publication uh, digitally today, but we can also produce paper copies. So that is the core of our business, so to say, what it started with. But this has now evolved, uh, evolving with the type of society that we live in. Uh, we are also publishing all the tenders, the calls for tenders from all the European Union institutions, but also from all the public authorities uh, in the member states at different levels from a certain threshold so that everybody in the internal market can take part in a call for tenders from a public authority in the same way, published uh, in all the languages. Then uh, we are taking care of what is called the open data of all the public authorities of not even only the European Union member states, but actually of all European countries. So also countries like Norway, or if you want, uh, Ukraine, are putting uh, their data with us. And uh, this is vast. It's vast. This is enormous when you talk about open data and how to manage it. Totally. So uh, our service is specialised in standardizing that's how they call it, labeling the data so that it can be used in every possible application. Uh, and found. And found, voilà. Uh, that is what the office is uh, doing. Then we are also active publishing things. So we have in the office graphic designers. We have people who know how to look whether a certain publication is adapted to a certain a target audience. You don't write in the same way uh, for children as you would write uh, for people who have uh, already a full university degree. We also... Usually not. <laughs> we, we publish the research results of all the EU-funded research and the EU is one of the biggest funders of research in the world. So that is can be used by other researchers, by public authorities. We run also uh, the library uh, of the European Commission, working together with all the other uh, institutions. Now, a library today is no longer a room with books. It is an access point to information and data. So we can provide uh, tailor-made packages depending on the needs uh, uh, of our users. We also make available as a matter of transparency how you can find officials in the European institutions because it is important for the citizen to know that Mr. X or Madame Y is dealing with a certain topic and to be able to address that person. So that's the whole set of the things that we do. Crucial, I think, for transparency, accountability, uh, democracy, and also uh, for the uh, development of the economy and ultimately for citizens' trust. Well, Hilda, wow. I mean, I'm exhausted just listening to that list and I'm not quite sure how you handle it, but I think if there was anybody to be in charge, you're the person to do it. I think the office is in amazing hands to have somebody with your academic and leadership qualities. And uh, thank you also for relaying to our audience your personal history, your work with Russia and Ukraine and your family history. And I will put a link to your parents' book as well. I mean, it's just so heartfelt and sincere. Thank you so much for being with us today. 
RTL Original Podcast. Now turning to my second guest, let me welcome Claudia Gable, who is Head of Communication and Fundraising at Fondation Cancer, which is the Cancer Foundation here in Luxembourg, and organised the first Relais pour la Vie, Relay for Life in Luxembourg in 2006. Now that has grown from 3,000 runners to 14,000 participants in the last in-person event in 2019. Claudia, it's so lovely to have you here in person. I know we've been in touch for various projects over the last year or so. Tell us about the work that you have done and its development from 2006 for Relais pour la Vie. Thank you so much, Lisa, for having us today here. Yes, like you said, we started um, small in 2006. We said, OK, we want to do a 24-hour event and we want everybody um, to be around the track in teams. And it's 24 hours to represent the life in uh, to 24 hours, a day in the life of a cancer patient. And everybody was looking with great eyes and saying, what do, what do you want to do? And it was more in the beginning, the internet, international community who said, OK, well, we will, we will support you. We will be, be with you. We will have teams. In 2006, we contacted all the embassies in Luxembourg and they said, yeah, we, we go with you. And the Luxembourgish people were more a little bit skeptic at the, <laughs> at the beginning. But then in the years, like, um, like it evolved very, very well, um, everybody was with us on the track and because it's not a small thing you said we started small organizing a 24-hour event is not a small thing at all (laughs) yeah yeah but when you look back back now we say okay in the beginning it was really small but we were happy at that time with 3,000 people that's already a lot yeah Yeah. Um, but it's not only based in Luxembourg it is a global organization yes it's now right now in 29 countries all over the world so you have Relay for Lives in America Australia um, in Asia it's really in, on every continent you have a Relay for Life. And it's taking place this weekend? Yes, on Saturday, Sunday. And how can people donate? You can go on our website. You can find all the teams. All the teams have fundraising pages, but you can also go on the website just and make your donation over there. And if people want to produce their own team for next year, how can they get in touch with you? I would say also just phone us or go to our website. It's www.relepolavie.lu. And then you can even put your team for this weekend. Ah. It's sunny outside. It's an it's a connected uh, digital um, event because we cannot. Be so there's still person. time. Yeah, you can. Oh, of super, course. super. You can put on your team and. <laughs> yeah, the weather has been incredible, so it's it's perfect. So effectively, these relay teams have to run between themselves for 24 hours. Yes. Yeah, you put up a team and then, but like that's normally when it's an in-person event, you have your planning and you're doing one person is doing um, 30 minutes, the other person is doing one hour and it's really a relay. But like um, for the moment, when you're a team with 24, 24 people and you walk for a one hour, then you also have to 24 hours. So that opens it up to a lot more people if walking walking is involved, particularly those with dogs, as I know very well. I could think <laughs> of already many teams that I could put your way. Now, tell us a little bit more about the Cancer Foundation here. Who do you support as the Cancer Foundation? We support cancer patients and their families because when you're when you get the diagnosis, you say it like this, um, of cancer, it's not only the person, but it's um, the whole environment. So you can come um, and make an appointment with our psychologists. It's everything is for free. You can come to us, your your, um, um, family can come and even the children because um, it's also quite difficult how to talk about your children with cancer when it uh, happens. So 
Yes, we are supporting. We are also supporting um, cancer patients who are in financial difficulties. Sometimes uh, also before, but when cancer comes, there are so many costs coming up and then uh, you really need help on, on that way. Between the Fondation Cancer and also Réle Pour la Vie, you are a very busy person. You can say so. <laughs> <laughs> we try our best. We are, we are a small team, really small team, but we try to, to do many things. We are also funding cancer research and um, we have um, a lot of prevention programs which you are building up. So we have... A lot of activities all the year round. And I just wanted to ask another question, really. Now, obviously, with the news, so many people are thinking about Ukraine and how to support Ukrainian people across Europe or other places. And obviously, the people coming here to Luxembourg. How do you continue asking for support when we have a very great need for support for Ukrainian people right now? Yes, Um, of course, we have it and we also support. So we are a member of the European Cancer Leagues. And with the European Cancer Leagues, we are putting up um, a special fund. As you know, right now, I think there are 3000 people um, already arrived in Luxembourg. There are also people who have cancer. So we will support them when they're here. And we are, um, as you maybe know, our president is um, working at the CHL. She's a doctor and we will... Um, Yeah, look after the cancer patients that are coming over here from Ukraine. And that's good to know, so they can continue their treatment here. Yes. That's extremely good to know. That's our our little small thing to help people. Well, it's no small thing at all, actually. It's an incredibly huge thing for people who are not only fleeing from war, but also fleeing with an illness such as mm -hmm. cancer, which touches so many of our lives in different ways. Most of us know somebody with cancer. That's incredible. Thank you so much, Claudia. How do you both cope personally when you have very heavy days when you're dealing with news from war zones or you're dealing with cancer stories all day long? That's a very difficult thing to take home and digest. Do you have a coping mechanism? Of course, um, <clears throat> I think we all have our mechanisms of dealing with, um, with difficult things. Uh, and I am a very lucky person I have to say I, I have not been hit by big personal tragedies uh, although of course I have like everybody else seen difficult things in my family around me for me my mental sanity my happiness uh, is music from when I was very small as long as I can remember I liked music I liked singing I liked making sounds and um, I have always had music as something very important in my life. Uh, actually my, my same grandfather about whom who went as a tiny boy uh, as a refugee to France uh, was the conductor of the village band uh, later on and he wanted me to play uh, in the village band clarinet oh. but my mother said no. Oh. Why? <laughs> because this is what I remember of it, but it's probably a bit more complicated than that because also he didn't live in the same village as we did. But what do village bands do after they have played? They drink. Well, exactly. <laughs> so I think that this wasn't exactly considered to be the best place for a girl, a little girl to be. So instead... My parents very much stimulated me in my music, uh, sent me to the music school. I played the piano, I played the organ, I sing, I sang in choruses from when I was very small and I still sing. And really music is my, my joy. 
singing is great because it makes you feel physically very well. You take in a lot of oxygen. Singing in a group is fantastic because you connect with other people in a way that you cannot describe to people who have not sung in a group. Um, music is very good for your brain uh, because it's a very structured uh, type uh, of activity. It's very beautiful. It's cross-cultural. You can connect with other people if you do not know their language. So for me, any type of music, as long as it's good music, uh, it um, I, I cannot do without music. But I would tell you one very strange thing. Uh, I normally speaking, do not let a day pass by without music. But when the war broke out, I have not been able to listen music for at least two weeks. I somehow could not. I somehow even like I felt guilty. Now I have found it back. Uh, I'm listening to music every day. But it is the first time in my whole life that I can remember that I just couldn't bring myself to listen because I felt it was not suited yeah. to the situation. Even if it's Bach, which normally speaking is Bach helps me whatever happens. If the world is not like it should be, uh, I want to listen to Bach. I once said to my, my husband, I would want to have a radio with a Bach button so that if something <laughs> isn't right, I just put it on and I'm fine again. But for the first two weeks of the war, even that, it couldn't come to me. But say, So yes, music. Music, is, music is always good, always, always helping. Mm -hmm. And by the way, I want to say uh, on music, but also about something else, at the office, um, this existed, of course, long before me, but we have the OP singers. We have a little chorus at the office. Wonderful. You'll have and to let us know when your next concert is. <laughs> well, I think we sing mainly internal. It's great. It's wonderful. Of course, COVID and singing doesn't go together because it's nothing as spreading viruses as singing. <laughs> but the yeah. colleagues have continued singing by combining virtual recordings uh, into a chorus, thanks to one of the colleagues. And so uh, I have the great pleasure of being able to join to join them now and sing uh, with them. And then about Le Relais uh, pour la Vie, this as well I would like to say, of course, we are participating with the office. There is a team and um, I look forward to adding a few kilometers on my side this weekend. I'm not a runner, but I'm a walker. That's perfect. Thank you so much. And for you, I know that you deal with, um, well, perhaps your passion, aside from all of the work that you do and the heaviness of the load that you might feel with the Cancer Foundation, you're a fencer. Yes, that's so we, true. we might have to have you and one or two of your colleagues in another time to talk to us about the fencing community of Luxembourg. That would be a great thrill, Claudia. Yeah, that would be very nice. Yeah. <laughs> and I want to say, I do want to say uh, that the people at the office are amazing. Well, Absolutely amazing by their competence, their dedication, their motivation and by the wonderful spirit uh, that is over there. So I'm super proud and happy that I can join them as part of their team. I still would want to add one little thing. Oh, yes. My colleagues have worked overnight to make a little brochure with pictures uh, in French and in Ukrainian uh, that can be used by Ukrainian children who are refugees uh, in here. Wow. The concept came from a lady in Poland who started with that, but my colleagues have further embellished it, turned it into a beautiful uh, brochure. 
and we are now going to put this online in as many languages as possible uh, so that it can be used in the first contacts for small and less small Ukrainian children or even uh, and their parents and <laughs> adults yes because we also have a Claudia a little section about being ill having to see mm -hmm. a doctor having to go to the hospital uh, so as to help people uh, in the very very difficult first moments and throughout uh, of their stay as refugees here in the European wonderful. Union. And of course also to help the people that are receiving them and helping them because not having a common language to speak is very, very difficult. So this should help them. It will be available online. Thank you so much. That's, uh, I mean, what a way to end. Thank you so much both for your time. That is giving me goosebumps to think that your people have worked on that so fast and so hard to produce that. It's Absolutely incredible. I think we should all have one here in Luxembourg yes. so that we can all learn a little bit of uh, Ukrainian or even the other languages, French and German. <laughs> well, thank you both so much for your time. It's a great honour to have you both here. Hilda, we wish you the best of luck with your continued success leading the office, as we call it, the office in another form <laughs> in Luxembourg on behalf of the whole EU. And Claudia, best of luck this coming weekend for Rile pour la vie. Thank you so much.